Loving Lord, we know that you fill heaven and earth, that there's nowhere we can flee from your presence. But there are times and places where you reveal yourself in a special way, where the spirit is felt in a concentrated form. And Lord, right now, during this holy time on the Sabbath, where we've come together to worship you, to honor you, to learn of you, we pray you will reveal yourself that way again. Please meet with us, Lord. We ask that um, all that we think and do and sing and give will please you and glorify you and that we can know we've been in your presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I have some, uh, some friends that were telling a story that they were taking a dream vacation. They bought the tickets uh, themselves, but then online they purchased this vacation with a beautiful hotel, white sandy beaches on this island, meals included. There are uh, tours and, and, and diving and excursions, and they said, boy, well, this is a great deal. It was expensive. It cost a couple thousand dollars, but they were getting a week in paradise for both of them in just a very nice hotel. They got there, and the hotel said, uh, we've got no record of your reservation. And they searched and searched, and and they said, uh, no, and then they asked for the receipt. It turns out they had bought this vacation from a bogus website that had ripped them off. The island and the hotel were full, and the only thing they could do is stay at the uh, Flea Bite Hotel overlooking the cemetery and eat at the Sleazy Spoon. Talk about the great disappointment. You think you're going to paradise, and you end up somewhere altogether different. You know, there are about 2.2 billion Christians in the world today. They call themselves Christians. They identify as Christians. But biblically, Jesus said the road is narrow and the way is straight, and few find it. And that's because a lot of people are being misguided. They're being sold a scam. I want to begin by... Uh, taking to a verse in the Bible. It's in Ezekiel. Matter of fact, we're going to visit Ezekiel several times in our study this morning. Ezekiel chapter 33. And stay with me. I'm just going to read the first 11 verses here. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring a sword upon a land, when an army comes and there's a battle, and the people of the land take a man from their territory and they make him a watchman. And when he sees the sword coming upon the land, and if he blows the trumpet, he warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet, if they don't take warning, the sword comes and takes him away and his blood is on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but he did not take warning. His blood will be upon himself. And Bible times, you know, they had cities off and on a hill, and there were different areas had uh, fortifications. Most people lived in the suburbs and the farms, and they worked the field. And you'd had someone that was at a, a prominent spot on the city walls. Cities were on a hill frequently, and if there was an approaching army, they had different ways of signaling from different high spots so they could even see the cloud of dust and the glint of their armor, and there was an army coming. They had plenty of time blow the trumpet, warn people, folks in the field would hear, they'd drop what they were doing, they'd head to the city and they would be protected off and be able to withstand the attack. But if someone hears a trumpet and they stay out there in the field, if they're overtaken by the army and killed, they're bad. They heard the sound of the trumpet, they did not take warning. 
But he who hears, who takes warning, will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming, he sees the approaching army. And he's more concerned with his own safety and he runs and tells his family, but he doesn't blow the trumpet. I'm paraphrasing here. And the people are not warned. And the sword comes and takes away any person among them. He's taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I'll require at the watchman's hand. And then the Lord summarizes this and says, So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die. The penalty for sin is death. And you do not speak and warn the wicked from his way, that the wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I'll require your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he'll die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Therefore you, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you shall say, If our transgressions and our sins lie upon us and we pine away in them, how can we then live? If you're pining away in your transgressions, say to them as I said, live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil way, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So the message there is hard to misunderstand. God is saying that ministers have a responsibility, to some extent every believer, uh, that we are watchmen on the wall to let people know that uh, there's an enemy out there that wants to destroy us and that we must flee from the wrath to come. We must seek the refuge that we find in Jesus. We must turn from our sins. If we are just going to pine away in our sins, we will die. And he appeals at the end of this. He said, sin will be your undoing. Turn, turn. You know, in Hebrew, you did not raise the volume when you wanted to increase the point. You did it through repetition. It's like Jesus said, surely, surely, truly, truly, I say to you. And so here he's saying, turn, turn. Why will you die? And one of the most important messages that God gives in his word is that we need to be careful not to be deceived by this outward form of godliness without the power, form of religion without the power. So there's a lot of things we may not understand. The Bible's a big book. Uh, we may not agree on the seven trumpets, what they are. I know good Christians that disagree on if they're past future or if there's a dual application. Uh, there are about 145,000 people that view the 144,000 differently. There are different views on baptism. You know there's going to be people in heaven that were baptized the wrong way. There are different views on diet and healthful living. There are going to be people in heaven that ate pork. Did you know that? There are going to be some people in heaven like Martin Luther that drank beer. I know, you're getting real quiet now. <laughs> you thought that was the unpardonable sin. There are going to be people in heaven like John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace who smoked. They thought it was good for your lungs back then, believe it or not. There's going to be a lot of people in heaven that maybe misunderstood some things, but there's some things you cannot get wrong or you lose everything. What you can't get wrong is what is required to be saved. 
Uh, misunderstanding that is like going out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean without a compass on a cloudy day and saying, I think I'm just going to wing it and find my way home. You're not being brave or cavalier. It's suicide. If you don't have a, a dependable compass, <laughs> then you don't know where you're going. So of all the things that we might not understand, one thing we need to understand is what does God want from us to be saved? What is expected? Now I'm going to tell you right away what the devil's deadliest deception is. You find it in the beginning where you might expect. Go to Genesis chapter 3. I'm just going to read the first few verses here. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning, more wily, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the devil chose that as his medium. And he said to the woman... Has God indeed said you shall not eat from every tree in the garden? He starts out by questioning the word of God and misquoting actually. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, namely the one of good and evil, God has said you shall not eat of it nor even touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you'll not really die. For God knows in the day that you eat of it your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes, probably had a nice fragrance, attractive. Evidently he had done something remarkable for the serpent. He's talking all of a sudden. A tree desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of them both were open and they knew they were naked. Things went downhill from there. So the devil's most dangerous deception is that the warnings of sin do not apply to you. God does not really mean what he says. That sin is really going to bring you satisfaction, but it doesn't. Um, that somehow you'll have some enhanced experience through sin, but it's a lie. You know, uh, Back in 2008, we all saw the unfolding of the most serious Ponzi scheme and fraud and scam in history of the world. Bernie Madoff, people had fun with his name because he made off with everybody's money. <laughs> Bernie Madoff made off with $64.8 billion of other people's money. It's just it's mind-boggling how it could take so long. But people put their life savings. They trusted him that he was going to make it grow. He was promising better returns than anybody, which ought to make you suspicious. They say in the world of invest investment, hogs get slaughtered. Meaning if you get greedy for high yields, you may really get taken uh, to the slaughterhouse. And he promised such great returns well, he just had so many new people that kept investing, wanting to cash in on this great, that he was keeping it for himself. He was working the books and changing the numbers, and he was able to hide it, very clever, be able to hide it even from investigators for years. He was a president of NASDAQ, trusted. We could trust Bernie with our money. And then it was found out almost overnight that it had been squandered and lost, either by his spending it, or in bad investments. 
And people, can you imagine? You work all your life, you save, you're planning on all those good years, and you find out some swindler had fooled you and you, you have nothing. You have to start all over again. There were companies that had invested other people's money in foundations that were supposed to give to causes in the poor and they were wiped out. The devil is a scam artist. He makes promises he doesn't plan on delivering. And some people are risking losing everything. This is something you cannot get wrong, friends. Jesus made it clear in his opening teachings there in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7. I'm sorry, I want to go, yeah, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, in that day, meaning the great judgment day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? They know the name of the Lord. We've cast out demons. They seem to have some evidence of success in your name. And we've done many wonders. Seems like there's power. And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Not everybody who takes the name of Jesus is automatically saved. Not everybody who even has evidence of success is automatically saved. There might be areas where it looks like they've cast out some demons and they have wonderful power. They might even have what looks like a successful ministry. That's no guarantee. The bottom line, Jesus says, if you are practicing lawlessness, I don't know you. Jesus came to save us not in our sin, but from our sin. And there's a lot of people who take the name of Christianity that are being thrown a deadly lifeline. Can you imagine? Someone falls overboard on a ship, and you know they have those life rings that's attached to a rope, and uh, they have the other end attached to the boat, and before the boat gets very far, you're supposed to hurl it to them, and they get a hold of it, they think, oh, praise the Lord, I'm saved. But uh, the other person untied it from the boat, and the boat just goes off and leaves them there. They've just got this illusion that they're saved because they've been misled. That describes, notice, Jesus, when he says few, he means few. When he says many, he means many. Many means the majority. Few means the minority. He says many will come to me in that day. So is it the minority or the majority who are deceived into thinking they're saved when they're not? So how do you know you're not one of them? That to me is the most important question that you almost ask. I have to ask myself. I said, Lord, I want to know that I have you. You've heard of a life and death situation? What could be more life and death? It's, you know, if you lose your physical life, that's bad. If you lose eternal life, that's worse. Not having your eternal life and death situation square is it's the worst tragedy of all. To hear the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. To hear it's too late. And then... You might just say, well, how do I know? Jesus gives us the answer. Jump back to Matthew 7, 15. He said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear good fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. If you don't have the right fruit, 
you're not going to make it. But you can know what the tree is by the fruit. Therefore, by their fruits, you'll know them. And so if a person says, praise the Lord, I'm a Christian, because I, and this is where so many people get it wrong. I went to church. The pastor told me, if I repeat this prayer and accept Christ, then now I have the gift of eternal life and by faith, that's all I need. Just believe that you're saved. And they don't instruct them in, but wait, wait, wait. That's the starting point. That's the first step. We are saved from our past sins by faith through His grace. But you must repent of your sins, which means you turn from your sins. We confess our sins. Whoever confesses and forsakes his sin will have mercy. That's what the Bible says. You can't just say the prayer and stop there and that's where much of the Christian world is. And they're going along with this illusion that they're saved and they think, how could everybody around me, they're acting just like I'm acting, they're living like I'm living. We're very little difference between us and the world. They're nice people. We must all be saved. But have you repented of, confessed, and forsaken your sins? Have you been born again? Are you a new creature? Are you turning away from what is bad and doing what is good? Now, you might be thinking, Pastor Doug, are you teaching perfection? No. Uh, I've got some trees up in the hills, and I know what tree they are, but what kind of fruit they have. But I got news for you. Not every piece of fruit on that tree is edible. So you might be the right kind of tree with the right kind of fruit, and it doesn't mean there's not going to be any flaws or faults in your life. The key is, have you turned from your sins? If you do fall, are you sorry? Do you repent? Does it grieve you that you've grieved him? I heard a pastor say one time, people come to the church, they join the church, they accept Jesus, they start following the Lord, and they got this sin that's bothering them. 20 years later, they still have the sin. It just doesn't bother them anymore. We get used to it. And that's what Jesus is saying is so dangerous. Yes, Christians do make mistakes, but you should be growing. He is the author and finisher of your faith. There is sanctification. But, you know, if you've got a baby eating with their fingers when they're, you know, eight months old, that's okay. If they're 13 and they're still getting the food in their ears and their nose, you better take them to the doctor. There's something wrong. See what I'm saying? And you got some Christians that have been in the church their whole lives. They haven't grown. And you wonder, are they really saved? This is the, the question we can't be confused about. Well, it doesn't matter what kind of label you put on a person. The Bible says you'll know them by their fruit. I like to remind people of the story. Abraham Lincoln would often ask, there's so much... Um, twisting of terms in politics and he would ask some of his friends how many legs does a dog have and they'd say four he said let's suppose you call the tail a leg then how many legs does a dog have and they'd say five he'd say wrong calling the tail a leg don't make it so is it it is still a tail and you cannot change the truth by changing the labels uh, the truth is the truth. Jesus came to save us from our sins. If we remain in our sins and pine away, we will not live. We must repent of our sins. Jesus said, John 15, still talking about the fruit. John 15, 1 and 2. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Now you notice that these are branches in him. They say they're Christians. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. You'll get disciplined. But if you've got the fruits, he'll prune it that it might have more fruit. God's looking at the fruit. We also need to look at the fruit. Bible tells us, 2 Corinthians 13, let every man examine himself. Pastor Doug, that sounds pharisaical. It sounds like being judgmental. It, It sounds like legalism. I'd like to read a quote to you from the book Steps to Christ, page 60. There are two errors, two errors, against which the children of God, especially those who have just come to trust in His grace, especially need to guard. What are the two errors? First, already dwelt upon, is that of looking to their own works, trusting in anything they can do to bring themselves into harmony with God. He who is trying to become holy by his own works in keeping the law is attempting an impossibility. All that man can do without Christ is polluted with selfishness and sin. It is the grace of Christ alone through faith that can make us holy. Okay, just wanted to underscore that. We all agree? All right, what's the other error? The other opposite and no less dangerous error is the belief in Christ, belief that in Christ men are released from keeping the law of God, that since by faith alone we are become partakers of the grace of Christ, our works have nothing to do with our redemption. Now, I run into this all the time in the evangelical world. A lot of friends out there, good people, but you don't mention the Sabbath, say, Pastor Doug, not under the law. We're, We're saved by grace. I don't have to keep the commandments anymore. And I always like to say, well, really? Which ones are you breaking? It's okay to sin? You say that a Christian? No, 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 no. They're usually a problem is just with the fourth commandment. Of course, there's some Christians that got a problem with the second commandment about idolatry too. But um, they say, oh, we're, not a, we're saved by faith. They think that any idea of keeping the law, well, Jesus was pretty clear. He said, whoever shall teach men to break one of the least of these commandments will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5. But whoever will do and teach them, do and teach them, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. God wants us to be obedient. You can come to Jesus just like you are, but I've got news for you. He loves you too much to leave you just like you are. You need to turn from your sins and repent of your sins. Are you not going to make it? And you're going to lose everything. It's not worth it. This is what the devil told Adam and Eve. Oh, I'm going to lead you into a more exalted experience. This is going to satisfy. The pleasure will be unimaginable. You're going to experience bliss. They listened to the temptation of the devil. They thought they wouldn't have to face the consequences. He said, you won't really die. Who are you going to believe? God said, sin, die. Obey, live. For God so loved the, whole, the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever be lives in him will not perish but have everlasting life. There are two choices, life or perish. And the Bible tells us that we must turn from our sins if we would live. Now God gives us what we need to obey Him. God will never ask you to do something without empowering you to do it. But there's a lot of counterfeit voices out there. They're false teachers. Talked about it briefly in our scripture reading. Look also at 2 Timothy Paul warns about these, second, these uh, false teachers. 2 Timothy 3.5 says they have a form of godliness but deny its power. What kind of power is it? When you come to Christ, he gives you the Holy Spirit. He gives you power. Jesus goes to heaven. Last thing he says is all authority. All of power is given unto me. Go ye therefore. 
2 Timothy 4, verse 2. He tells the young disciple there, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort, exhort, rebuke, convince with all long-suffering and teaching. Why? For the time is coming when they will not endure sound doctrine. There is a deadly doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, because it's attractive and it sounds better, they'll heap up for themselves teachers and they'll turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Paul warned, Acts 20, verse 29, he said something similar. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. And friends, it's tough to say this, but, you know, I, I wish I could say that our denomination is immune to this. But the devil's the same in all ages. It happened in Israel. You had true prophets, you had false prophets. And yeah, even among God's people, it, it'll infiltrate any denomination. These subtle ideas that you can continue a life of sin and still be saved uh, is not true. Now, again, I want to reiterate, it doesn't mean as a Christian you may not make mistakes, you may not fall, but if you are held captive by sin, if you are willingly surrendering to sin, if you have no regret or remorse for sin, you're not saved. Because sin is what killed Jesus. If you think sin doesn't matter, look at what it did to him. And tell me God is indifferent. He wants us to be new creatures. Isaiah 30 verse 9. That this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who do not want to hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceit. They want to hear lies. They want to hear God came so that everybody could be wealthy and healthy. Have you heard those preachers before? They, you know, they got different terms for this. One is called sloppy agape. It's just love, 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 and they don't talk about holiness. The other one is called um, a gullible grace, and then you've got blab it and grab it. That's where you can just say anything you want. God's going to give you whatever you want. The, the, he, he's your you know, slot machine in the heavens. And you just, he's just there to make you prosperous. And that's not the teachings of Christ. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. The Bible talks about striving against sin, wrestling. We must endure. We must resist. There's uh, effort involved in being a Christian. Pastor Doug, I thought you just had to believe. It is true. We are saved entirely by faith. You've got the example of the thief on the cross. He turned to Jesus. And by the way, uh, what's happening in this story there in Luke chapter 23 is that um, this thief, when he was crucified, two thieves crucified with Jesus, they both were first engaged in the mocking of the mob. But they were there six hours. Something happened. <clears throat> Somewhere along the way, he saw them gambling for Jesus' clothing. And then he heard Christ say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his mind went back to something he probably heard as a boy in Sabbath school. That Psalm 22 begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And later it says, they cast lots for my clothing. And his mind became quick. You know, when you're dying, they see your adrenaline's released and things happen very quickly. 
and his mind's quickened by the Holy Spirit. And then he looks at the sign above Jesus' head. And it says, this is the king of the Jews. And he heard him pray, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the Holy Spirit revealed to him, this is the Messiah. And he had the faith to say, Lord, even his disciples didn't call him Lord at the cross, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He did not look like a Lord. He did not look like he had a kingdom. But he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's saying, Lord, save me. Jesus, that's so wonderful, you know. Even though the devil nailed his hands to the cross, he couldn't keep the Savior from saving. And Jesus immediately, because of that man's faith in him, he reached out to him and he said, I'm telling you today, I'm making a promise today. He didn't say, you be with me in paradise that day because Christ didn't go that day. Read John 21. He said, I'm making you a promise today. You will be with me in paradise. And that man died, saved, by faith, by believing through God's grace. Now here's the question. It's hypothetical, but you have to ask this question. Suppose before that man died, if after he accepted Jesus, if Pilate sent the soldiers out and said, oh, it looks like we, we got somebody's name wrong. You really weren't supposed to be crucified. We're really sorry. Please forgive us. You can file a lawsuit later. And they pry him off the cross, take out the nails, and they bring him down. They bind up his hands, and he somehow heals would he go back to stealing and murder? Or would the grace of God, if he was really saved, would it have transformed him? Would he have lived a different kind of life? I surmise that if he was really saved, he would have then had the fruits of obedience. On the cross, he repented. He said to his friend, he said, do you not fear God seeing we're in the same condemnation? We're getting the just uh, uh, punishment for our deeds. This man, speaking of Christ, has done nothing amiss. Then he said, Lord, remember me. He publicly confesses. He repents. He believes. He testifies in Jesus. He confesses Christ publicly as his Lord and his king. Right? It's one thing. People want Jesus as Lord. They don't want him as king. They want him as Savior. They don't want him as Lord, is what I should have said. They don't want him telling them what to do. They just want him to save them from their sins, but they don't want to be saved from the power of sin in their life, just the penalty of sin. If you're going to be saved, you need all three. You need to be saved from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and in heaven you'll be saved from the presence of sin. But... If the Son will make you free, you should be free. What does it mean to believe? You know, we often quote and sometimes abuse the verse in Acts 16.30 where Paul and Silas talked to this Philippian jailer and he said, what must I do to be saved? Oh, I love when someone asks me that question. I remember studying with a couple and finally the wife just blurted out, what do we need to be saved? And I thought, I'm glad you asked. So Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. Now what do people think typically when you say believe? They think that means believe that Jesus is the Son of God, okay? Believe that he died for the sins of the world and even that he died for my sins. I believe that and that means I'm saved. All I've got to do is believe that. That's not the way Jesus meant it and that's not the way Paul meant it. That's not the way the Hebrews understood it. Believe means believe what he said. And what did Jesus say? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Jesus said we need to turn from and repent of our sins. 
Let me tell you the part that people don't read. Read a little further in Acts 16, verse 32, after they told the Philippian jailer, believe and you'll be saved. It says, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. That's why they could say you and your household because they taught them the word. What did they teach in the word? Jesus went to heaven, said, teaching men to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. They were taught the commandments of God. That's why he could say believe and you know, what does it mean to believe? Suppose you're walking down a path and the path comes out into a meadow and all of a sudden there's a great precipice and down a long way down there you've got this raging river in a canyon. It's this gulf longer than the Grand Canyon and there's a bridge. I understand. I've not been there. I'd like to see it. They, they've got this um, bridge at the Grand Canyon now that just goes over the canyon. It's a glass, glass floor. The bridge doesn't go anywhere. People are just uh, awestruck when they walk out and they look down and see nothing under them. And, it, and some people, they crawl out there. They can't handle it. We were just in uh, Singapore and we went in Taiwan. We went to the top of the Taipei power, Towers there. And you can get right up there and there's a spot where you got the glass. You can stand on the glass. Look, it doesn't bother me at all because it's like flying. I fly all the time. So, yeah, I've seen that before. But uh, some people they walk out on that glass thing and they just, their hearts start to race. It's like they, they're afraid of this bridge to nowhere. And they say, I don't believe it. You know, it could, something, it could be an earthquake and I could fall off in the canyon. They get back. So you come to this, I haven't forgotten my story yet. So you come to this bridge across the canyon and someone asks you, do you believe that bridge will take you to the other side? And you say, yeah, I believe it. Why do you believe it? Well, it's got a sign there that says this bridge is solid and it will take me to the other side. But you don't get on the bridge. Then you see other people going down the bridge and they don't seem to be falling off. And someone will say, do you believe yet? I do believe now. They're making it and they look heavier than me. Do you believe yet? Not really. It's still just up here. Finally, how do you show your belief? You walk out on the bridge. You believe it will hold you up. And until you come to the point where you say, I believe that Jesus can save me from my sins and I am going to turn, that means repent, from my sins. I'm going to confess. I'm going to forsake. I'm going to start doing some tangible things. Then you don't really have belief. James 2.19, you believe there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe. So it's good to believe, but that's not where it ends. The devils believe. You remember reading in Luke 4, this demon-possessed man cried out and said, let us alone to Jesus. What have I to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Demons always said, we know who he is. Did the demons believe he was God? They believe more in his power than you do. Did the demons believe he died on the cross? Does the devil believe he died for your sins? Yes. He tried to stop it from happening. Is it going to save the devil? No. So it's not just believing that he died. It's believing that he can transform your heart and give you a new power. Amen. So, friends, as Paul says in Galatians 4.16, am I your enemy if I tell you the truth? You want to hear these things? There is no sin in heaven. The devil was cast out for sinning. If the devil was cast out for sinning, we are not going in sinning. Is that reasonable? Ezekiel 28.16, you sinned, therefore I cast you out as profane. 
1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators or idolaters or adulterers, it's the pure in heart that are going to see God, or homosexuals or sodomites or thieves or covetous or drunkards or revelers, partiers, or extortioners, like Bernie Madoff, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Paul is talking to the Corinthians. He says, you had these problems. He's got a pretty big list there. He says, doesn't matter what your sins are. God can forgive and save you. But he says, you were. Now, you understand that. In English, that means past tense. You were, that means you're not anymore. But you've been cleansed. You've been sanctified. Galatians 5.19, the works of the flesh are evident which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, can't go around being hateful, contentions, argumentative, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, bad temper, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I've told you, I tell you again, as I've said it before, Paul is saying, look, I keep telling you, those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I want to inherit the kingdom of God. He says you can't continue to practice those things. It's not just believing and continuing to live like the world. God is calling the church to new holiness. Revelation 21 verse 27, there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. Speaking of heaven, there's going to be no sin in heaven. God must save us from our sin. Hebrews 12.1, lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Now I appreciate that Paul, assuming he wrote Hebrews, I appreciate Paul admitting that we can be easily ensnared. Sin is very tempting. Uh, sin attracts us in our minds, it attracts us in our bodies, it attracts us in our pride and our selfishness. The devil is always saying, oh, just one more time and then you can repent later and it'll, this time it's going to bring you satisfaction and there may even be some temporary pleasure in sin. But it doesn't last. It's a big lie. So we struggle. The Bible says we're running this race and the devil's always trying to trip us up with sin. It so easily besets us. But what does he say? Lay aside most of the weights. So lay aside every weight. Have you seen, it's amazing to me that, you know, the Olympic athletes now, the lengths they go to. I remember when I was a kid, I'd watch these swimmers. They'd jump in the water and they'd be these big old baggy bathing suits and they're swimming along and they had long old hair and, and they started realizing, you know, that suit had a little bit of a difference. They win by fractions of a second and they started wearing Speedos. And then the guys started shaving the hair off their chest to go even quicker. And then they started shaving their heads or they put on the, the um, swimming caps. And, and uh, just they didn't want anything to slow them down. And the runners, they got super technical, light running shoes. They lay aside every weight, anything that can slow them down. But you and I, we kind of just go slogging through the world thing. Oh, is this going to make any, oh, well, what difference will this make? Now, you're not going to win the race unless you realize that you must be, by God's grace, unencumbered by the sins of the world. One of the ways you can tell a person that's on their way to heaven is they are constantly striving against sin. They don't blow it off. They don't get comfortable with it. That's when you're at risk of grieving away the Holy Spirit. 
when you just act like, oh, it doesn't, I don't care. It's not that big a deal. As long as I sin less than other people, those are the kind of deceptions the devil has. Ephesians 4.22, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man that grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Put it off. There must be repentance. Going back to Ezekiel, chapter 33, verse 13 now. When I say to the righteous that he will surely live, but he trusts in his own righteousness and he commits iniquity, none of his righteous works will be remembered. Because of the iniquity that he's committed, he will die. Don't get discouraged. Listen to this. Again, when I say to the wicked, you will surely die, if he turns from his sin and does what is lawful and right. And then he gets specific. If the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he's stolen. So you've got sin in your life. And you borrowed your neighbor's leaf blower and you have forgotten for the last two years to give it back because your neighbor moved four blocks away and you figure he's not thinking about it so you're not going to remind him because you don't have your own leaf blower. But you come to Jesus. The Holy Spirit says every time you pick up that leaf blower, you borrow something for two years, it's called stealing. You say, but I want to go to heaven. Jesus said, you need to take him back his leaf blower. Lord, you're not going to keep me out of heaven for a leaf blower. Yeah. Because your heart isn't right. Do you know you can go to heaven? No, wait, let me say this again. You can go to hell for stealing a pen just like stealing a million dollars. If you go in and you figure they're a bank, they got a lot of money, and I put my money here, so I'm taking this pen that they just lent me with me. You just robbed a bank. The pens are not free. You got the spirit of theft in your heart. It doesn't have to be a million dollars. You just did what Bernie Madoff did. Theft in the heart. What do you have to do? He says, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has stolen, walks in the statutes of life. I heard about a preacher that went through Scotland. He was doing a revival and he was preaching near these shipyards and he talked about repentance and he talked about restoration. Sometimes it means you go to a person, you apologize. You right whatever wrongs you can. Now, you and I know, I mean, I used to be a thief. I can't go back and repay all the people I ever stole because I don't even know who they were or where they lived. It was dark. I mean, there's some things you can't do, right? Sometimes you cannot, as they say, unscramble scrambled eggs. It's just, but when the Holy Spirit puts something on your heart, there was one particular case where I knew I had stolen from an employer and I went back years later to make it right. And I had to apologize to my stepmother for stealing her Jaguar XKE and wrecking it. And I wrecked it in reverse. I was backing up and I wrecked it. And then I drove it home. It still drove. Parked it in our circular driveway in front of the house and went to sleep. She woke up and thought somebody drove into our driveway, hit the car, because fortunately it was wrecked in reverse, and then drove away. And she was ranting around the house as someone had wrecked her Jaguar. I never said anything. Years later, I became a Christian. I said, Betty, we need to talk. <laughs> well, by that point, you know, I knew she was going to let it off the hook. She had a Lamborghini. <laughs> so, you, you know, finally I had to, because it bothered me that I lied to her. I probably lied about other things, but that's the one the Holy Spirit put on my heart. So being a Christian means you might need to right some wrongs. That's what repentance is. 
gives back what is stolen, walks in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he will surely live. He will not die. None of his sins which he has committed will be remembered against him. He has done what is lawful and right. He will live. I love that. See, you got the gospel right there in the Old Testament. Ezekiel of all people talking about saved by grace. You repent. You got to turn. God is merciful. He's long-suffering. But he will in no wise clear the guilty. Meaning, if we persist in our lives of sin, what more shall he do? If we continue to sin willfully, Hebrews chapter 10, 26, after we receive a knowledge of the truth, there's no more sacrifice for sin. Now that doesn't mean you won't make a mistake, but it means if you, if you resign yourself to a life of sin after Jesus died to save you from your sin and you're not doing all you can humanly to combine with his divine power to walk in a newness of life, there's nothing more he can do. You want him to offer a second son for you? There's no more sacrifice for sin. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Jesus said, Luke 13, 1, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is warning us. John 5, 14, afterward, Jesus found this man at the temple. He had been healed, a cripple in the pool of Bethesda. He said, see, you've been made well. Sin no more. Now, do not turn back to that life of sin, lest the worst thing come upon you. He says to the woman who's caught in adultery, she's guilty of sin. He said, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. You notice Jesus never said, go and sin a little less. He never said, go and see if you can cut down on your sin. Just reduce. Sin less than the people around you. He tells us here in James 4, verse 7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. It's not just your actions, your hands. It's your hearts and your mind. The pure in heart will see God. So God wants us pure in action and in thought. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Sorrow for your sin. Let your laughter be turned in mourning. But he doesn't leave us that way. Humble yourself in the sight of God and he will lift you up. He doesn't want to keep you there, but we need to realize when we sin what it costs. It's not enough just to be a hearer of the word. He wants us to be a doer of the word. It's not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, but they that do the will of my Father. Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord and do not the things what I say? Matthew 7, 24, he that hears these sayings of mine and does them is like a wise man who builds on the rock. Blessed Revelation 22, 14 are those who do his commandments. John 3, or 3 John I should say, 3 John 1, 11. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He that does good is of God. He that does evil has not seen God. It is so clear all through the Bible that God is wanting us to be new creatures. You know, Moses in his closing appeal at the end of his life. I really like the way he puts this. Chapter 30, verse 15 of Deuteronomy. I have set before you this day life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God. Now, a lot of people stop right there, period. Love the Lord your God. I love you, Lord. And Jesus said, well, if you love me, how do you show that? 
keep my commandments. Notice Moses says, love, I'm commanding you, love the Lord your God to walk in his ways and keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, you'll prosper. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you go to possess. But if in your heart you turn away so that you do not hear and you're drawn away and you worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today you will surely perish. Notice he says you got to live on one hand and perish on the other. It's like John 3.16. You will not prolong your days in the land that you cross over the Jordan to possess. I call heaven and earth to witness today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both you and your descendants might live. How do we choose life? When you choose Jesus and you choose the grace of Jesus, the grace of Jesus not only means his mercy and his favor, the word grace means we are empowered. God does not give us grace to sin. He gives us grace to keep us from sin. And when you're tempted, if you turn to God, he will send all the angels of heaven to help you. Most of the time when we're tempted, we wait until after we've fallen to pray. If we would pray when we're tempted, if you draw near to God then, submit to God, resist the devil, he will send supernatural forces to your help that will enable you to succeed. Do you believe that? I, that was a very important key. I hope I made that clear. That you might love the Lord your God, that you might obey his voice, that you might cling to him. For he is your life and the length of your days, that you might dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, there's a lot of counterfeit Christianity that is being spread around there. You know why? Everybody wants to say our church is growing. We want to look successful. And uh, the real gospel is tough. Jesus walked away from Jesus. If, uh, people walked away from Jesus when he um, gave it to him straight. He had to ask the disciples, are you going to leave me? The truth is sometimes tough. And pastors are wanting to make the narrow road wider. And it doesn't matter what the pastor says, if it doesn't follow the word of God, that road has not changed its size or its direction. And we're more interested in quantity than quality. I was an evangelist for years. You do an evangelistic meeting. First thing that the conference president or whoever is going to ask you is, you have a good meeting, had a great meeting. How many were baptized? Well, we only had two. Oh, I said, well, you know, there were others that wanted baptism, but they weren't ready. And I've traveled and worked all over the world, and I've seen it where I've, I've gotten into arguments with pastors and even conference leaders where they want to baptize all these people. I say, have you studied with them? Do they know what this commitment means? Are they ready to? Were they in church last week? No, but they're going to go. People getting baptized through some emotional event, and they've never even attended. And it's like these people who get married the first day they meet someone. Those weddings might look nice, but they, marriages don't last. So in their effort to try to grow Christianity, we're often hurting people into the church. We're lowering the standard to make it more attractive. Pastors are doing market surveys and saying, let's find out what does the community, what are the felt needs in the community? I, and I realize you want to minister and know what the needs are, but to build your whole service around, people don't want to have to look respectable when they come to church because it's too much work to dress up. So tell them, just come in there, shorts and a t-shirt and flip-flops. They're hungry when they come. 
bring donuts. They're tired. Give them coffee. Just find out what they want. You can grow a church. They don't like the hymns. Give them some livelier music. Just make it fun. That's kind of the mindset of so many churches these days. And, and I, there's some people that are, you know, uh, well, I gotta be careful what I say here. Um, you know what I'm saying. We're, we're lowering the standard of holiness. Uh, we're trying to broaden the narrow way, change its direction so that we can get more people in the world. This is what the church did during the dark ages. They said, you know, we'll get more pagans in the church if we let them keep their idols. They started compromising to try to grow their church. And so as a result, pretty soon, yeah, you had a lot of people in the church. It just didn't mean anything anymore. You could barely tell the difference between the church and the world. So, the devil is seeking to dilute the gospel to try to get more people in. Let me read something to you. This is from Review and Herald, 1904. Our churches are becoming enfeebled by receiving for doctrines the commandments of men. Many are received into the church who are not converted. Men and women and children are allowed to take part in the solemn rite of baptism without being fully instructed in regard to the meaning of this ordinance. Participation in this ordinance means much and our ministers should be careful to give each candidate for baptism plain instruction regarding its meaning and its solemnity. The sacrifices that are involved and what it means to follow Jesus. You know, when um, a good pastor, when a couple comes and says, we, we want to get married, will you marry us? A good pastor can say, look forward to it, but we're going to have some counseling first because we want the marriage to last. If you baptize a person too soon, you're not helping the church, you're hurting them, and you're hurting the church. Help them know what the commitment is so when they make it, they stick. Someone once said that if a person pops in the church too quick, they typically pop out also. You want to let them put their roots down. Bring forth fruits that are evidence of righteousness, John the Baptist said. Well, I got more sermon, but I'm out of time. Let me close with this. A few years ago, I remember hearing about this uh, lady who was dying from cancer who sued her pharmacist. And she won a lawsuit of $2.2 billion. Now what in the world would make a jury award someone $2.2 billion? This pharmacist, Robert R. Courtney, was a serial killer, but the way he killed people is by diluting their prescriptions. You see, some of this medication for cancer and other serious diseases is very carefully measured. You don't want too much or you had bad side effects from the chemo. You don't want too little or it has no effect. And he thought, you know, if I dilute this and split it two or three ways, I can get a lot more money, sell more medicine. And he never really cared what the consequences would be for the people who were dying. And over more than a decade, he filled out 90, over 90,000 prescriptions where he diluted the prescription. And there's no telling how many people died from that. Well, that's what the devil is doing with the gospel. He's diluting it to the point where it is without effect. They're watering it down. It's like um, people in a prison of war camp. They just keep adding more water to the soup until there it has no more nutritional value. And the devil is doing that with the gospel. Friends, I hope I've delivered my soul from your blood today. It's pretty clear that... Uh, 
we need to flee from the wrath to come. So we've got a problem. We're perishing. The wages for sin are death. We're all under that death sentence. There's only one way of escape. It's to accept the sacrifice of Jesus, to receive Christ, to believe in Christ, and then to follow Christ and his teachings. Have the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, goodness, faith, temperance in our lives. That's what it means to be saved. Please, don't be deceived by the devil's most dangerous deception that we can have a form of godliness without the power. Bottom line is we want to be like Christ. He's our example, and he was godly and holy. Amen? Father, Lord, we thank you for the, uh, the message in your word that's so clear. It's, sometimes it's amazing that we can become confused and begin to doubt that the claims of the gospel have not changed and that uh, your law and the penalty for sin is still the same as always been and that you have set before us today life and good and blessing and cursing, and I pray that we will choose life. Lord, help us to recognize that you would not send your son to suffer what he suffered and to die as he did unless it was entirely possible for every person here to be saved. That you've made the provision. Help us not fall for the deceptions of the devil that somehow temptation and sin are going to bring us real satisfaction. Forgive us for our sins. And Lord, we know that even in the future we may stumble and fall, but I pray that we'll not be satisfied until we perfectly represent you. Um, bless each person here. We know that uh, there may be a broad spectrum of different sins and struggles represented. Uh, we know, Lord, that uh, some may need to um, experience reform, right some wrongs in their life. Show them through the Spirit what that means and how to go about it and give them the courage. And most of all, help us to have the peace as we humble ourselves that you will lift us up. The gospel still is good news. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings, your presence. Help us to really walk with you both today and this week. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.